my sparring partner was often, so I had two, one was a girl called Marie. Fortunately, we were around the same weight, so that was great. My other sparring partner was a guy called John Manu. He's a Southpaw, strong as hell. Um, fights What's a at, Southpaw? Is that, is southpaw that is a left-hander, yeah, so super annoying, super So annoying. you're obviously a righty? Yeah. Yep. Okay. And is that a North Paw? No. Right? <laughs> I love that. That is the best question I have ever well, been asked. Why is one called a South Paw and the other one not called a North Paw? Oh, I wish I could even answer that question. I have no yeah, idea. That's not logical. Can... Come on, Boxing Will. Get with the program. <laughs> a right-handed fighter is called Orthodox. Oh, Cassie, that's just weird. Why is that a North Paw? <laughs> Oh, you beautiful soul. Yeah, man, that's that's the limit of my boxing <laughs> knowledge. Oh, shit. <laughs> Entitled this episode, The North, North Pole. Pole. You know what? Oh, my God, I'm crying now. That's going to be the snippet that I put on there. <laughs> well, hello, everybody. Before we get into today's episode, which is a doozy, let's talk about a sponsor, The Woodford Group. Do Monday mornings get you down? Are you feeling unmotivated in your current job? Then it is time for a change. Let the team at the Woodford Group help you find your dream job today. With a focus on senior executive, permanent and temp roles within the HR, business support and customer service industries, the dedicated team will help you find success and satisfaction in your new job. Visit woodfordgroup.com.au today. Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. Having three boxing championships to her name, today's guest has learned the art of resilience as a businesswoman, performance coach, boxer, and now podcaster. From the comfort, predictability, and safety provided by the corporate world to the lessons and letdowns in and out of the boxing ring, our chat was both inspirational and a laugh and a half. Episode 66, Tiffany Cook. Welcome to One Moment Please the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success and you take a moment to tune in to bring on the inspiration. All right, let's rock and roll. Hey, Tiff. Hey, Fiona. (laughs) I'm laughing because you were so much more bold when we were talking before and now you're like seeming all meek and mild, (laughs) Madden. Just luring the listeners into a false sense of security, Fiona. I know, man. I tell you what, you certainly are. They were like, what do you mean she's a boxer? She's so shy and polite. She's not. Well, you are polite, but you're not shy. (laughs) (laughs) I think you referred to yourself, well, you're not, I think you did refer to yourself as a live wire before, so. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Got a live one, got a live one. Now, one of the things that I wanted to have a chat to you about the podcast is that you don't meet many female boxers and you are do you feel you as still currently a boxer well I'm not boxing anymore I'm not competing anymore I do love the sport um and I'm I just reached out today to my old coach and said hey I'm going to come down and you know throw a few with you this week but um yeah I'm not competing anymore why are you going to throw a few? Is it to re- reconnect or do oh, you feel like you want it. to? I just miss training with him, like just hitting the pads and, re- you know, getting pushed to the limit. No one, no one pushed. There's nothing quite like 
especially in a performance sport like boxing where you really push to the edge of your limits mentally, physically, all of the things. And then finding the right coach that really knows how to do that. Like there's nothing like getting pushed just that little bit beyond where you have the ability to push yourself. So is it just in terms of you wanting to hit the pads with him or is this going to be a uh, whoops, now I'm competing again? It's definitely not competing again because I have made the statement many times that I am am anti the head trauma now and I think once you make that association or once I make that association, there's just, there's just no turning back. Like I miss it. I would love to. I would love, like I know I, when I watch people sparring in the gym, I'm like, oh, let me in there. <laughs> but the idea you know, of 320-something podcasts I've done over the last couple of years and I'm speaking to neuroscientists and, and thinking, you know, about mental health and consciousness and the brain and the biology and, you know, I can't turn my back on how I feel about that now. Mm. Life is hard enough, Fiona. I don't need to go <laughs> flailing my brain around inside my head, making it potentially any harder than it's you know already going to be. Fair, fair enough. How did you how did you get into boxing in the first place? Because it's not a normal. Like I think it's one thing to do it for fitness. I think there's a lot of women out there doing it for fitness, but it's another thing to get into the ring and say I'm going to get punched in the face. Like what made you want to? <laughs> What made you go, yeah, that sounds like an ideal career for me. I'm going to leave the corporate world and get into into getting my face back. Good question. Good question. Um, just showing off, to be honest, if I'm going to be completely honest. What was showing off in terms of turning up with a black eye? Well, you know, I had this obsession. I was 29 when mm. I decided that this was going to be the new thing, the new experience I was going to have. But why? Why was it like why did you say I want to get into boxing? Because I walked into a gym, I'd been I'd been to a, a seminar on resilience by Paul Taylor, and that was really cool hearing about the science and neuroscience around resilience and its relationship with physical resilience. And you know, he's a former Air, Navy Air Corps officer and has done all the interrogation training and all of the things. So we're seeing clips of that and hearing about this process of building resilience. And after that, they strategically stroll us downstairs to show us this gym space of this really cool gym facility and then underneath the gym facility there was the basement boxing gym and it just so happened to be a big A1 poster of a couple of guys in suits with boxing gloves on advertising zero to hero executive fight club and I was like do do chicks can chicks do this I'm gonna do this this is me I remember uh Maybe the year before that, I lived near the PCYC gym in St Kilda and I would go there and do the odd boxing, boxer size class. And I remember me and my pale pink gloves flailing around at the bag, flailing my heart out and just quietly thinking, I just wish Susie or Roy, which were the trainers, I just, look, I'm just going to hit this bag and I just want them to come over and and see something in me and say, you should learn to fight. So I had this really fixed mindset that I didn't wasn't aware of that was if you're good at something, if you can do something, someone that knows will tell you and then you'll have permission to do it. So never in the world would I have went up to a boxing trainer and said, I would like to learn to fight. I just, it was like I was had to be picked for it. 
But then there was this poster and I was like, oh, well, nuffies can do this. Absolute clowns can do this. This is for office people and I'm an office person. So that was my opportunity. It's interesting. I kind of get when it's so far out of your comfort zone that you'd go, yeah, like I kind of need someone to be like, okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I completely get that. I'm with you on that one. I wouldn't rock up to somebody and be like, yeah, I want to fight. Show me. Yeah, like it just sounded ludicrous to me. And I think also it's not the thing that women do. No, in terms and of, I, you know, that mindset. Yeah, and I, I had coasted along through life. Like at 17, I bought a, a road bike in Tassie, a motorbike, and I cruised around on a motorbike. I had this desire to want to stand out and not, not be a typical female. I didn't want to, you know, I wanted to be different where do you think that they came from um when I look back now and a lot of this kind of all showed its face at 29 when I sort of always talk about when you step into the boxing ring you can't your mask falls off you can't take it in because you're stepping into an environment where you are instinct driven so if I'm terrified there's no acting around that we because we're in an environment where we react so punch comes at me if I'm terrified I will step back I will cower I will close my eyes if I am going to fight if I am aggressive if I am confident I will lean forward I will throw a punch I will walk into it I will take that on and there's no amount of uh inventing that (laughs) response in the moment there's ways to train it you know we we can train it and that's what I learned to do so I can't even remember the question now why (laughs) too many hits to the head Fiona (laughs) see why I'm giving it up (laughs) well I don't even have the hits to the head and I'm like this all the time you're like I don't know what I asked you (laughs) no no I asked you why you felt the need to sort of buck the trend being a teenager you Uh, bought the motorbike yeah so if I look back now I say I was quite a shy person uh I wasn't super confident in myself Mm. but I wore a bit of a mask of being the show off Mm. and making the noise and so I I wanted my behaviours to speak on my behalf. So I wanted people to know from afar, oh, she's different. Oh, she's unique. Oh, she's special. And I feel like looking back, I didn't know it at the time, of course. I wasn't like, oh, I'm going to be special and buy them. You know, like I just wanted people to be like, oh, that girl's different because I sure as hell didn't have the confidence to say that. Was it the fact that, oh, I'm different or was it a, was it a, bit of a stuff you to the world I'm going to do my own thing mm, it was a bit of, of a finger yeah a little bit of both it was I guess I wanted to be seen as tough I wanted to be tough I was tough but not in a sense when I talk about it like this and I think of the picture that it, that it paints it may come across to sound more rebellious and more, oh, she's off the rails. Like I dyed my hair fluoro pink and I, you know, I smoked cigarettes and I bought a road bike and I cruised around on the bike. But I was also still a, I was also still just a girl, you know. Mm. I was just, I was using this bold appearance to try, you know, I also just worked my guts out in having two jobs and working hard and doing the things, um, you know, I wasn't taking drugs or, you know, I was drink, or 
go out drinking on the weekends, but I was very sensible and I had my head screwed on. Were you insecure? Yeah, uh, yeah, def- yeah, I think so, definitely. It's I wouldn't a- have thought I was. I didn't, I didn't have the self-awareness to really pick apart my personality and my attributes the way that I can now looking mm. back. The reason why I asked is that I get the sense it was a bit of a I'm going to push people away. Oh, mate. <laughs> oh, mate. <laughs> you're on the money. <laughs> you that's, why, me around? That's, that's why I asked if you're insecure because it was like, and she'll, I'm going to push people away before they can get in my space and I have to have that vulnerability. Oh, you perceptive little thing. Yes. I'm not so little, mate. You're the little one. You're competing in 54 <laughs> kilos. <laughs> not anymore, mate. Not anymore. My muscle's on now. Um, yeah, oh, that was 100% it. Zero vulnerability. I didn't even, I, I wouldn't even. I mean, you little... mean 100% vulnerability? No, a zero, 0% I was willing to have. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, zero vulnerability, like no idea what vulnerability was and no one was getting in through the walls that I was building. But no, yeah. also no awareness of that. Like it, I was 29 before I realised, oh, no one knows me and I don't know me. My my parents don't know me and I don't know me and I'm actually not this persona that I've been getting around as. I would think that 28 is quite young to figure 29, that out. 29, 29. No, but I would, you know, I'm still sort of figuring that out and I'm, a lot older than that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, look, I, I agree. I, I do agree. I um, You know what's funny? I've always throughout life when I've talked, whether it's to therapists or people or conversations, one thing that stood out and even from quite a young age is pe- people commenting to me, oh, you, you've got really strong self-awareness really strong self-awareness. It's quite funny because last week I was asked to do a talk for a company, um, do an interview, and it was on the topic of emotional intelligence. And I work with a guy called Harps, Craig Harper, on his podcast, and he's doing a new uh, a PhD in neuropsychology on external self-awareness, so very mm. much his realm. Now, I'm somewhat emotionally inept still as an adult and it's it's my biggest source of what I'm working on now and what do you refer what would you classify as, as emotionally inept um I so emotions like up until 29 didn't access them didn't exist couldn't right. emotionally regulate one so of my completely super, disassociated from that emotion completely disassociated right. and learned that from seeing that in the boxing ring and realising that in the boxing ring. So that was a really great trait as a fighter because there was no emotions to getting hit. There was really no awareness in that realm when the fight is on and the, the predator is in front of you and, and you're fueled with adrenaline. It's like, oh, yeah, right. And, you just, and it was just very technical for me. It was like, blah, 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 we're here. But and so the same thing was happening outside in my life. So it was this realisation over time of seeing that. So I have this way of, it's like we we find patterns. So I was really quick at seeing patterns. Oh, I see this pattern in the boxing ring. Well, obviously, where is that in my life? Oh, it's everywhere. Oh, something happens. I respond to it. Three days later, I some emotions come up around it. And there's no realisation at any point that that's not what everybody else experiences. Mm. 
um, when it was like, I remember once I had a partner of mine and he'd said something and three days later, it, you know, it started, it was bugging me. Three days later, I was like, you know, when you said this, really, that really hurt, really upset me and kind of snapped at me. It was like, if I, if I upset you, tell me at the time. And then I got upset because I was like, I, I didn't, because I couldn't understand. I'm like, I'm telling you now, I didn't know at the time. It's not like I, I pretended it didn't. I didn't mm. know. And now three days later, I'm having this emotional processing over it. So that's something that I'd worked on and that I have worked on for years now and that, you know, starting to reel it in. But, um, yeah, I think that it's really interesting. Hmm. So how did you go from, I mean, you don't have your hair dyed pink now and you <laughs> we don't have a dart hanging out of your mouth <laughs> and... Um, and you see, you're very approachable. How did that wall started coming down? Was that just boxing that you sort of started crumbling that? It would have been before that because mm, there were. I went, and this is what I mean about the the, per, the perception of of describing myself that way. Because so I moved to Melbourne at twenty, got a job, very personable, great with people. Always got shoved out into sales roles, so very introverted and shy, but put out into sales roles because oh, you're a people person. Oh so my god, that's me! How yeah. tiring is it? It's exhausting. <laughs> and it's like I'm, I'm not good at this. I'm not good at this. And then after a while, you're like, okay, I'm good at it, but what like? It's just exhausting. Like I'm the same. Like yeah. I'm quite happy to be sitting on a couch watching Netflix rather than going out to a party. And I've always done sales. But when you realise, okay, I'm good at it, but it takes so much more energy to, yes. to yeah. Yeah. It's that whole introvert, extrovert conversation, isn't there? Like we all think that an extrovert is someone that's like that's good at it. But mm. it's really it's more about what gives or takes energy. It's not about whether you're good at it. Mm. I, I thought I was quite extroverted until we went into COVID and I realised how exhausted I was with all of the interaction that I was out there giving and not so much receiving. I realised that I was more introverted than extroverted because I heard someone define it. It was probably an Instagram clip or some bloody bullshit. (laughs) And they said, (laughs) obviously resignated well, Top of my quality, quality, you know, <laughs> research there. Um, and they said that extroverts get their energy from other people and introverts lose energy when yes. they have to interact with other people. And I went, oh, my goodness, I'm yes. an introvert. I always thought that I was an extrovert. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's so funny how we use this thing that we think is so smart which is our mind our brain to process things and it overrides what we probably intuitively know about ourselves like it took a pandemic and some silence for me to go oh goodness that's been a really tiring way to live life the thing that I'm finding now is that um I now because of the lockdowns and I've mentioned this before those that are outside of Melbourne um Melbourne was the most locked down city in the world. We weren't mm-hmm. allowed to go out of our house unless it was for a medical appointment or to the supermarket. And even then it was a, a limit of 5K radius. And we were allowed out for an hour of exercise a day within the 5K radius. So it was very much you were locked into your house. As a result of two years of that, um, I now 
having never had anxiety in my life, I went to the shopping centre the other day, like to go get some clothes. I'm like, okay, well, I haven't been clothes shopping in the last two mm. years, two mm. and a half years. And I was like, I have to get out of here. I can't deal with the people. Yeah. Like I can't. I went down to visit um, my parents and there was a festival on near there and they like, I got a free ticket for the festival. I'm like, I, I can't face going facing thousands of people. Yeah. <laughs> no for me. <laughs> That's a hard no. And I've <laughs> never had that before. I'm like, okay, this is something that I need to work on. Like it's just interesting how. I think that you can go too much one way if you're not managing that introvert side, for me anyway. Yeah, I definitely agree with it. You know, you know, I feel like right now the place that we're in, especially in Melbourne because of that experience, right now seems to be, for me and the circle that I'm in and, and the people I speak to, is there are a lot of people really struggling with anxiety and mm. and processing and trauma and I think it's this case of trauma happens and the trigger like the the metaphor that was the last two years the meaning of that for everybody layered upon what exists underneath their own psyche whatever it might represent whether that's abandonment or loss of control or a whole bunch of things that it can represent. It brings up this trauma. We're in the middle of trauma and then we open up and then we come out and then as we start to get into life, which has been happening now, and as that all of the restriction fall away, it falls away and normality comes back, that's when we start to feel like, oh, actually I'm in the middle of something right now. This is I'm not doing so good. Well, it was interesting because I I, I went to my doctor about something else and she goes, oh, I think you're sounding a little bit anxious. And I said, well, we've had like two years of full-on lockdowns and the media has been horrific in terms of if you get COVID, you're going to die um, messaging. Yeah. And she, she said, oh, I, I, I'm really angry how the media has portrayed it. Like I think they've over-exaggerated everything. It's really disappointing. We just need to get on to, to life and don't worry about it. It's not so bad. And as she was saying this to me, that it's an overreaction. She's sitting there in full PPE. <laughs> and and I mean full PPE. I'm talking mask, face shield, goggles, the full gown outfit. And this was just at a GP clinic. And I'm like, wow. I really don't think that the image you're portraying is in line with your messaging. <laughs> So I haven't been back to that. <laughs> Fair call. Fair but yeah, call. It's, it's, there's a lot going on at the moment. Anyway, we digress in terms of everything. But, yeah, it's uh, there's a lot. <laughs> congruence, Doc. Yeah. Congru- congruence. I just need to, you know, just go shopping, get out there and get some retail therapy happening. <laughs> Yeah. So what were we, we completely went off on the side the side tangent. So you, anyway, so you were being a um, pushing everyone away in terms of motorbikes and pink hair. Yes, yes. You know, yeah, pushing it well and unknowingly. You know, it was only maybe four. I would say four years ago, maybe even only three. I feel like it might have even been two thousand and nineteen, and I was sitting in. 
my therapist's office, having a little chat about life. And whatever we were talking about, I for the first time this penny dropped and I remember bursting into tears. I was talking about when I moved from Tassie to Melbourne and in this moment where I was telling her about something, I realised that when I was 20, so almost 20 years ago now, I had packed my bags and moved over here to do and achieve and to gain a sense of worthiness so that the people back home could see that I was special and that I would be worthy of their love and I would I think it was all about worthiness and but what I had realized is in the process of that I had built walls up and I had spent 10 years actually running the opposite direction unknowingly running the opposite direction and causing disconnection and that was a hard realization to make and a hard pill to swallow like how can I do the opposite of what I essentially wanted for 10 years. But there's this subconscious, like, I didn't know that that's what I was doing because we just do, like, I think I wasn't processing it. I wasn't thinking of it. I was just doing it. I'll go do this. I'll go do that. And then so I just on. get really busy. Let me just repeat that. So you moved over here to get validation from others in terms of what you achieved, but you were actually pushing them away. Yeah. Pushing them away geographically because you moved or pushing them away? Both geographically, but in this process of of putting on a persona that you want to present to the world to be okay and to be confident, to be this and to be that, um, it, ca- it causes disconnection. So when you, when you do not step into vulnerability and be yourself in front of the people that you love, then you get, then you don't get their true self. So there was just this, I realised that in this facade of my life of moving over here and I did nothing amazing but, you know, I was just, I was I was this little Tassie girl that was like, I'm going to go to Melbourne and do this and I'll do that. And, you know, from the outside looking in, I achieved some great things. It was like, oh, look at Tiff go. She just moves over there and every time she does, everything she does touches, turns to gold. And in that I could see that, some relationships were like people just don't relate to you or when you go out achieving things, you you can create a rift. It's it a tall like, poppy oh, syndrome in be- Australia, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. and then there's that intimidate, like I guess in- intimidation or and it's not even real anyway. Do you think that you have that fear of judgment? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I yeah. think it's so common. Oh, yeah. Everyone's like, oh, I'm fear of failure, but I'm like, I think it's more of a fear of judgment. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. I think you're right. But you did do well. I mean, you were in a corporate gig and then you decided to take up the boxing. Yeah. How did you go from seeing the poster in the gym to then wanting to do that as more of a full-time? Well, I remember I've signed up for this event, right? And I've told the world because that's what I told the world. I am doing this professional fight in 12 weeks' time. You're all going to buy a ticket. Give me 250 bucks. You're all buying a ticket. It's going to be on Foxtel. There's going to be 1,000 people there. It's been amazing. A couple of weeks in, a couple of weeks into training, we're doing, uh, we're learning defence. So we're learning how to hold our glove so, on, on our face. It was going to be on Fox. It was going to be televised on Foxtel. Yeah, this one was on, yeah, this one was a televised event. So it was 1,000 people. You hadn't fought before. 
No, and so it was a corporate event. So it, it's aimed towards. So it's it's on, on a professional card, but it is for corporate non boxes. Okay, people Amat- that are amateur. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So a um, couple of weeks in, we're learning how to how to catch punches, put our gloves up, turn our head, you know, do the things. And I was with, I'd partnered up with a girl that I become friends with. She had guns on her like you wouldn't believe. She was she was a tough chick. For those that that don't know, that are over in um, other overseas, guns are good arms. Good guns and biceps. Arms. biceps yeah. <laughs> I interviewed someone the other day and I he was American and I said, oh, you got a good rig on you. And then I had to explain to him what a rig was and I was like, you just got a good body, mate. It's oh, fine. that's all good when you've got to actually say, oh, you've, you've got a good body. <laughs> I forget. I forget the lingo doesn't yep. always span across yeah. the oceans. Oh, no. Anyway, so good, good guns. Good guns. So we have to just float. Gently float our our glove across, catch punch. Anyway, couldn't couldn't keep my eyes open. Had a knot in my throat, and I was like, "Oh, I'm going to cry." And I'm not a cry. I wasn't a crier back then. I'm gonna. I can't wait till this class is over because I'm going to go and sit in my car and I'm going to cry. This is so confronting. I can't keep my eyes open. I can't keep my face bored. And this isn't even a real punch. What the hell am I going to do? I've told. I've sold twenty tickets to this show, and everyone knows I'm going to be. And now I can't even keep my eyes open when a glove floats across the room towards me. And that was kind of the tone of the 12 weeks. And the day of the fight, I'd, at 4 a.m. after still not getting to sleep, I, I remember messaging my chiropractor who I was going to go and have a little, you know, pre, pre-fight night session with the next morning. I was like, I won't be in because it's 4 a.m. and I haven't slept yet. And I've got to get up at 7 to pick mum up from the airport anyway. So I think I went to sleep at six. So I'm going into this fight with an hour's sleep and I had anxiety. I'd never experienced anxiety before, but that day at some point it just went click. And oh my poor mother, I could not converse with her all day. I was just so overwhelmingly anxious and emotionally inept. <laughs> And I remember saying, there is nothing in this whole world that could ever be worth the way I feel right now. I will never do anything like this again. And then next minute we're sitting there and my friend was the first fight and she wins her fight. And I was like, yes, winning team, I'm going to win. And then they hand her a microphone and I'm like, oh, God, no, I don't want to win because I don't, I, I like, I am very comfortable in front of a mic now, but I was terrified of speaking. There were a thousand people there. I was like, so I'm sitting there going, I'm terrified to lose, but I'm terrified to win because I don't want to hold the mic. And then next minute, it's people are tapping on my shoulder. They're like, ah, your opponent's warming up. Like you're on in a minute. And then it was just being swept up into the the whole thing. And then I'm walking out to Eminem and then my hand's in the air and then the fight's over and you could not get that microphone out of my hands again. I was on fire. But the feeling afterwards of, you know, the first thing I said was I'm doing the next one. So the feeling of doing it anyway after how horrific I felt leading up to that was just the most powerful transformation of my mind to go like that paled in comparison. That was quite an overwhelming feeling, but the feeling on the other side just made that anxiety a distant memory I couldn't even grasp. But it was like, nah, water off a duck's back. 
And so that was incredible. And it just took a lot of lessons out of that. And I kept, I continued to do, I did three more of the corporate events before I started fighting in the amateurs. And by the time I started fighting in the amateurs, I'd started personal training on the side and and teaching people boxing on the side and within six months I threw in my job and took that up as a as my full-time gig. How scary was that moving from a guaranteed full-time salary to I mean you're in sales it could have been commission only but I'm assuming that you're on a salaried position. Yeah I was on a salary yeah so it was terrifying and and so what had happened was within six months I'd I'd built up a client base and I was like oh god um, I, I've either got to say no to any more clients or I've got to give this a go. Now, the thing that made me give it a go is I only became a personal trainer because I got to do the qualifications cheaper. So it was never even really a plan to be a personal trainer. And then I thought, I've got the qualifications, I'll teach people some boxing and then next minute, here we are. But the reason I, I chose to quit the job, and it was a brilliant job for a brilliant company. I'd been there 18 months. I was just starting to make waves in the work that I'd done and I was like, oh, am I going to leave this? But I felt like people choose to become a personal trainer and they would give anything to be in a position to quit their job within six months. And so I felt like there was a reason behind it. It's a bit woo-woo, but I was like, I feel like it's not fair to not give this a go. Um, And because what's the worst that can happen? I'll always be able to walk back into a job. So, and it was hard. I toed and froed with that for a bit and it was terrifying to do. Um, two months after I quit my real job, I tore the labrum in my shoulder and couldn't hold pads. So you can oh imagine no. what the next 10 months was like when I had to train my clients with no ability to hold pads for them or to box. <laughs> Lots of shadow boxing for them? <laughs> well, I got to, I learned to proficiently use the pool noodles, which are a really fun training tool that replaces pads. But um, it's quite, they're, they're tricky to get to know, especially when you've never used them before. So I was, it was a quick learning curve on those bad boys. <laughs> so how did you go from, I'm just going to do a few uh, corporate gigs, now I'm, I'm doing boxing coaches and PT, to I'm actually going to do an amateur fights for realsies and try and get for the championships? Mm, I'm a bit all or nothing. <laughs> I'm a bit all or nothing. I am, you know, I don't see a point. I I never understood people that would box and just do an event every now and then but not stay in training. I I never got the concept of that. So for me it was very much if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it to the very best of my ability and and there'll be no umming and ahhing or wondering. Like every time I step in for a fight, I'll, I'll know that I've put, my everything into it or what's the point um one the housemate of mine that fought in that first fight she had started training in the amateurs the year before me so I jumped over and joined her so I also had her to kind of bounce off and and join the little our own little team of two <laughs> little fight camp of two how different was it stepping into the ring and fighting for the novice championship compared to um, the corporate gigs, because I imagine those punches are quite different. It was, it was terrifying. So I remember. So the corporate gigs are 
all the bells and whistles. We're fighting at the Melbourne Pavilion. Uh, there's over a thousand people. It's packed. You get your fight song. You get all the belt. You get your fight card. Your fight name. All of the things. And then you go into the amateurs, and most of the girls aren't thirty. They're in their twenties, right? And they've done footwork, and they've done. They've trained for. You know, we're doing these series of eight-week camps, which are, we learn a lot of good technique, but very fitness-focused. Fitness is the first thing you want to be on top of if you're going into a boxing fight, and then you can work the fancy shit out later. I hope you can swear a little bit on this podcast because I fine. just did. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I remember, so I go to this first, my first amateur fight, and it was in December. It was supposed to be in August, but I had, what I didn't, I kept having this back injury, which turned out to be I'd fractured my transverse process, which is your spine, the, the side of your spine. I fractured that. So go me. Um, and I fought with that fracture. I love the, I love that response. It's such an Aussie response. Go me. <laughs> like I'm one Just of those people. That, back, but yeah, go me. <laughs> literally won my first fight with a broken back. It's one of those things. So I remember was, <laughs> I was in for my first fight in the August and I went to the fight doctor and I said, I've got this thing going on. And he goes, okay, well, good. so he put a, what is it? A anesthetic cool. at the, I was going to say cold pack on it, but it was like, he, he, gave you an, he gave you an injection, didn't he? He gave me the old jab yeah. to numb it. He goes, well, this will numb it. If this works, then you can have one of these jabs on the day of the fight and then we'll figure it out later. Well, he gave me that jab and it did not relieve the pain. So I, was, I couldn't skip. I couldn't move my body. So then we skipped forward to December. We're still getting oh, the day of the, the week of the fight. I come in and I'd start to skip and then I'd walk up to my trainer. I'm like... I can't bounce. I can't like it's still there. And he's like, "Well, you got to do you. You got to f and do something. You're fighting next week." And it was like, "All right." My trainer was a bit like a million dollar baby trainer. It was tough love. It was like, "I will make you a champion, or I will make you cry and never return to this sport." That was his. That was his philosophy. So, um, so I get seeded through. So my first ever fight, I'm seeded through to the finals. So no. I'm not in the semifinals. I'm fighting in the finals of the novice title. So that was my first fight. And so I went to watch the semifinals and there's these two chicks and they're so fast and their footwork and I'm watching them going, oh, my goodness. Oh, oh my God. What am I doing? I can't do that. And also I was like, oh, they're so tiny because I was fighting, I was training with – my housemate who was a few weight divisions bigger than me and boys. So my mirror was I was the same size, like I was the same as them and then I'm looking at these girls that were actually in my weight division and I was like, oh, they're so tiny. Like when tiny you're saying boys, are you talking adolescents or are you talking men? Nah, that are just men. Frank? Okay. Men. <laughs> and... Um, but I remember the day of the fight, the day of this fight. God, it was magnificent. We're in the training rooms warming up. Oh, right. And so I couldn't I couldn't shadow box and I couldn't, like I'm debilitated with this weird injury. We get there the day of the fight and I start warming up on the pads and I am, it was like I was outside. I've never felt like this since. It was like I was outside of myself. I had this adrenaline in my system. I could not feel my, well, I couldn't feel it before the fight. I'm thinking, I don't know what's going to happen when I step in and throw a right hand because if that, as soon as that grabs, what's that going to do to me mentally when I feel that pain? 
So I, I, I had no idea what was going to happen. But I'm shadow boxing and doing pad work and I felt like I was moving like I had never moved before. And it was just the weirdest thing. And this is what adrenaline does to you. And then I got in the ring and there was zero pain. And so I won that fight and I remember going to training the next Tuesday afterwards. So we fight on a Saturday, have a Monday off because we earned it. And then we're back at training on the Tuesday, pick up the rope, start skipping. And my back is sore again. And I was like, it wasn't there. It wasn't sore before. And that was just the power of you don't, I didn't feel pain. And that shows me I didn't feel pain in that environment when there's that adrenaline in my system. It's crazy. And then you go for, I'm assuming, like an MRI or something, and they go, oh, yeah, you've got a broken back. Yeah. And you're like, oh, that way. makes sense. That's like, why. Oh, you've got, you've got uh, your fracture, you've got a couple of fractures in your transverse process here and here. Uh, congratulations. That's a really difficult uh, injury to sustain, and it's normally quite debilitating. People often can't even get around walking. So I was like, how did, oh. you, how did you do the injury in the first place? Um, my theory is, and I could be wrong, I'm just kind of, making it up but my theory is when I was when I first began fighting I wasn't great with footwork and I and I really planted my feet and I was a very strong puncher I was talking about this funnily enough just yesterday to someone I was training my upper thoracic doesn't I don't have great rotation but because of the movement of rotation through boxing I look like I rotate really well but the majority of that rotation happens in my lower part of my spine so say right. from my hips to my bottom of my rib cage. So, so you're a, so you're using that lower part of your back. Yes. As the as the effort behind the punch. Yes. And look I at remember, me go. I don't even know anything about boxing. Look at you oh, go. God, maybe I should take up a new sport. It's, well, I'll train you. I'll teach you. We'll get you firing. We'll get you firing. Oh, I, don't I remember. Idea of black eye. <laughs> I remember the day before feeling that pain. I was doing. Um, pad work with my trainer and we we're throwing a cross hook cross so that's a right hand left hook right hand and they were just I just remember going wow the sound was amazing so they were hard and there was a big rotation and so I think that that was the particular moment where it was like mm, we've had about enough of you and you're twisting and smashing things at such force so how long was the recovery I actually can't Because you won that remember. fight. You yeah, won. so I, I won that fight. When were my next fights? I had, so I got that diagnosed after Christmas and I probably was, it was probably six months or so before I was back in. But even, so then so with my was next. Two, so 2014 you were diagnosed yeah, after your first yes. championship? Yeah. And then, then I fought the again 2015, in, in, yeah. Yeah, correct, correct. So I probably had six months or so off and then it was just a case of starting really slowly. Like it was a stress fracture, not a full break. So um, so it was just a case of really re- reintroducing training slow, which is not my style. Yeah. <laughs> you know, all or nothing over here, little miss all or nothing. <laughs> did you take time off after 15? Because there was a four-year gap before the 19. Yeah, that's when I tore just... my shoulder. So uh... I tore my shoulder and I'd started my business. So getting to training and fighting. So by the time my shoulder was healed, you know, getting back into fighting and finding a club and things just wasn't wasn't prioritised. Um, until... So was that this – so when you're saying your business, was that the coaching business or were you doing yeah. something else? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So, and that can make it difficult because all of a sudden your working hours are the hours where you want to be training other people. So it's mm. more difficult to go and get training when you're normally working in that time. Um, in that time, I'd also started taking for a couple of years Thailand retreats to Thailand, boxing retreats. Um, so just going away and doing a whole bunch of things. And three years goes really fast. Like it's been three years now since I fought in 2019 and it feels like yesterday. How tall are you? 168 centimetres. So what's that in feet? Five foot? Five, six. Six. Yeah. So how do you go coaching someone if they're if your client's heaps taller? Oh. Like me. <laughs> so I had, I mean, I had a guy that used to train with me and he was, well over six foot and a hundred and something kilos and he didn't have to hold back. Now I, I coach boxing and I'm very technique focused and if you hold the pads right and you teach good technique, you will not injure yourself and you okay. can you can hold. But if you Because I'm just al- thinking you'd be reaching up for the pads. Like that's yeah, a, no, you don't ex- want to you don't want to you can reach up a bit, but it's why the way that you hold your shoulders and, and hold to catch the punch mm. is really important. But also um, the training somebody how to throw a punch is going to, if I do not train someone to throw a punch and it comes straight off their chin and they actually throw with their body, not a haymaker with their arm, their accuracy becomes difficult. So you combine those two things and you can, you can hold pads for a really strong, strong hitter, hitter. So where are you at now? You, I mean, you Obviously took a couple of years off and then did 2019 and won that again because, of course, you did. Go you. <laughs> Tell me roll. Tell me roll. <laughs> yeah, no. I'm not doing anything half-assed. Um, when did you start getting into the corporate speaking gigs? I was doing that, I guess, along the way. So I've always done business networking, which is a huge part of... Um, being an introvert? Know, yeah, huge part of being an introvert. <laughs> two things that I talk about that changed my life that I attribute that to and one is the boxing ring and the other is networking and mm. when I worked for a particular company I uh we merged with another print company and the owner of that company was in a networking group he rolls in and goes I'm in production now you're the salesperson you can go to this meeting so you have to go every week and introduce yourself and build relationships I was terrified Deep end though. It's so so good being thrown the deep end like that. And I actually prefer going to the networking events without anybody because then it forces you to speak to somebody because if you go with somebody, then you're just more likely to be the wallflower just chatting to them. 100%. Yeah. 100%. So, yeah, I've always always done that and I've really enjoyed dissecting this, this, um, the intersection of physical training and business and you know because because I ignored my professional life for those couple of years like I was just obsessed about getting to the gym and boxing and training and didn't really give a shit about the rest but the thing is when I looked back over my shoulder I was like oh look at the progress for me in my professional business and personal life so it's transferable skills and it goes hand in hand how you do one thing is how you do everything and I'd implemented some really strong characteristics to become a boxer, to become an athlete. And those things change who you are outside of, like you don't just switch them on and off to go to training. They become a part of who you are. And so being able to speak to people in business and get them to integrate and understand the benefits of all of that, I was really passionate about that. 
And it's weird. It was weird. I was terrified of speaking, but I, for some reason I always had a deep appreciation for people who could inspire and hold a crowd. Or mm. It's such know, a skill, isn't it? Yeah. It's an art form, the people that can do that. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's what drove me to have to get uncomfortable. You know, it was, if I didn't have the boxing where I learned to step into discomfort, where I learned to have to do that and be consistent and get punched in the face, like that was part of it. You have to, I think we all have to um, expose ourselves to that in an area of our life to desensitize from the fear of it or to befriend the fear of it so that we can take that into other areas. You know, the amount of times thinking about how I feel before a fight, which is anxious and nervous and fearful, and that I get to understand deeply the process of that is that it makes me perform well. It it gives me the neurobiology that makes me sharper, more focused, more connected, more powerful, right? So that's that's what happens in the boxing ring, that's also what happens when we're nervous to perform in front of a group. So I go, I'm really nervous for this talk. It's those nerves that it's going to make me connected and empathetic and, and on point and engaged with this audience. So you consciously have that talk to yourself, okay, I'm feeling nervous now, but this is actually going to help me. Yeah, and it's like, hang on, what am I feeling? No, no I'm not feeling nervous. I'm feeling excited. How are you? I'm excited. I'm excited by this. This is excitement. Why? Because I chose it. If it was anxiety, I wouldn't choose it. Are you reframing that though? Is it yes. actually, okay, so it's yes. so you actually are anxious, but you're reframing it in terms of I'm ner- it's nervous because I'm excited. So I'm you're gonna, sort of tricking that the brain. I'm going to challenge that and say who said it's anxiety in the first place. So I choose. Okay. So I put it under the microscope more than I say I reframe it. I put it under the microscope because it's it's our story. So we, why do we say it's anxiety? It's an uncomfortable feeling, but it's the same. And anxiety and excitement can be often the same thing, the same feeling. And if you're cho- if I'm choosing it, if I'm cho- so I'm I choose to go and speak to companies, and then before I speak, I'm really nervous. That's that's got to be excitement. Otherwise, I wouldn't be there. When you are in the ring, does that pre-fight you probably probably be feeling all of those emotions? But when you're in the ring, you mention the adrenaline. Does yeah. that does that then? heighten those nerves or does it sort of make it fade away there's no room you're so sharply focused that it kind of narrows down like once you're in there you are then in action mode so how was it the first time you're in the ring not sparring and you properly got punched in the face I have no recollection of feeling that but what I what I remember about the first fight, this is what I remember. I remember we're fight we're punching, and it feels like maybe it was fifteen to twenty seconds in, and I tended to have a really high work rate, which I thought I thought it was my opponents. I'm like, I would watch other people box, and I'm like, you know, they box and move and box and move, and mine just felt like it was just on. And there was and there was just this continuous stream of action. There was no moving around and picking shots. It was like Zero they're always throwing and I'm always throwing. 
And what I realised is that was me. <laughs> I'm an aggressive little shit. But I remember we're 15, 20 seconds in and in my head I went, holy shit, this is this is unsustainable. There is no, this is the hardest thing I've ever done. Do I really want to do this? Do I want to be here? Yeah. Um, I'm going to have to chill out a little bit. I can't do this for, for three rounds, three two-minute rounds. I'll pick and move. Not a strength of mine, picking and moving, not a strength. So I got pummel, 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 and I was like, okay, that's not going to work, back to it. <laughs> <laughs> because as a non-boxer and someone, I, I mean, I don't, it's not a sport that I'd choose to sort of sit down and, and watch. Like it's not a, you know. <laughs> but whenever I've watched them, you know, flicking through bloody something, <laughs> And I kind of have the impression that it would be all nerves and then if that was me in the ring getting pummeled, I'd be like, oh, shit, I really don't want to be here. That really hurts. <laughs> what was I thinking? I remember. Mum, mum. <laughs> when I went back in 2019, in that three-year period, I'd done a lot of therapy on my emotions, on my on childhood trauma. I'd, I'd done a big deep dive into the TIFF story and in, as part of that because I identified in the boxing ring that the, that this dissociation was happening so I'd step in I would not be emotional um so it's I was, a good thing though isn't it in the it's boxing a great ring? thing it's yeah. a great thing but in that three-year period where I wasn't competing and I decided to go to therapy and work on this emotional regulation and getting and feeling emotions and doing the work on on me and my staff I had to ask myself, do I want to pull this lever because this lever is attached to boxing? Do I want to be a boxer or do I want to fix my my personal life? Because you can't pull a lever and not change Tiff the boxer. So when I went back in 2019, I was like, who's she going to be in the boxing ring now? Because mm. because it's not going to be the same and it wasn't. And I, so my sparring partner was often, so I had two, one was a girl called Marie. Fortunately, we were around the same weight. So that was great. My other sparring partner was a guy called John Manu. He's a Southpaw, strong as hell. Um, fights What's a Southpaw? Is that, is Southpaw that is a left-hander. Yeah. So super S- annoying, super So annoying. you're obviously a righty. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And is that a Northpaw? No, <laughs> I love that. That is the best question I have ever well, been asked. Well, one called a Southpaw, the other one not called a Northpaw. Well, I wish I could even answer that question. I have no yeah, idea. That's not logical. Come, come on, Boxing Well, get with the program. <laughs> a right-handed fighter is called Orthodox. Oh, God, see, that's just weird. Why a Northpaw? <laughs> Oh, you beautiful soul. Yeah, man, that's that's the limit of my boxing. <laughs> oh, knowledge. Oh, shit. <laughs> Entitled this episode, The North, North Pole. Pole. You know what? Oh, my God, I'm crying now. That's going to be the snippet that I put on there. Told you I was a functional moron. Oh, this is so good. This <laughs> my area of expertise boxing this is why i wanted to chat to you because it's so i love chatting to people that have lived such a different life and you being a north poor is really you know different <laughs> so uh so i'm sparring john manu for the first time when i went back in 2019 
who's a southpaw, which as we all know now, that means he's a left-handed. Lefty, yeah. <laughs> and he hits his – he's got this odd <laughs> – <laughs> Well, you oh. made me just snort on a podcast. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. I feel like you're not going to get control again of this. Oh, my God. I can't laugh at myself. All right. So you were fighting this South Pole guy. <laughs> yep. And um, it was the first It was the, the first week I'd gone back to my old trainer. So I hadn't sparred for three years pretty much. I hadn't, hadn't really been training very much. And he throws me in with John. John also has this freakish ability to... His, his punches don't look like, he doesn't even try to throw them hard, but they land like a freight train hitting you in the face. Like it is weird to watch because when you watch, they look effortless, but when you wear them, you're like, what the hell just happened? And I got in this, so it's this dingy dark, you know, it's down in Dandenong and this, oh, you know, God. this dark little gym and they're all, yeah. they're all blokes. And so it was intimidating anyway. And then everyone's getting into a round robin with John. So John was prepping for a fight and everyone's getting in doing a round fresh with him. And then I get in and I just felt so exposed. But he gets me with an uppercut on the nose that, and I just thought, that's it. That's definitely broken. That is definitely broken my nose. And it hadn't, but he hit me with another three of those in that round. And it was the first time in my life, and this was part of that whole feeling feelings and the difference of me in there. I was like, it was the first time I felt so exposed, like I had emotions and everyone could see them and nothing had ever felt that uncomfortable to me before in my life to feel like my emotions were being seen and felt by me, by the way. But I remember, um, and I had, along with that came a real challenge uh, getting hit the way I did before. I would walk into anything before and there was no flinching. Whereas now all of a sudden there's more of a tendency to, to flinch or to protect myself more, which was kind of annoying. But there was this time I was sparring another guy and another very hard hitter. And I kept struggling to get on the inside and stay in there. And so we do this round and he landed a punch on my eye but I got in, I stayed in on the inside and I landed in with some hard, clean shots and it felt amazing, right? So I was like, I come out. My um, eye, top of my eye was immediately the size of an egg. I had blood running down my face. I could, you know, it was, <laughs> I'd worn a big one, mm. but I got out and I was like, you don't even have to tell me how good that was. It was like, because I'd, I'd overcome this thing. I'd stayed inside. It, you know, when you can get hit like that and, overcome it and stay inside and stay the course it was incredible it was the most incredible moment it was so funny because I was like Tiff you got your whole face is swollen up <laughs> like you've you've worn one there not him but I'm like it didn't matter 
the fact that I that I was able to control that situation again. How have you ever spoken to um, the guys that you're sparring with and and ask them how they feel about a woman stepping into the ring with them? Because if you're stepping into a ring, regardless of your gender, like you, it's but you know you're stepping in there all bars off. Like it's not like normal society, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's definitely not. Um, so how does that feel? Because I would imagine that the most of the guys that are in there are more alpha males, and yeah, and our. Our gym, our coach and our coach's philosophy was no token punches. No token punches. When we spar, no token punches. You hit hard and you hit and you don't hold back and the boys won't hold back. Um, and it was it was challenging because for, this, for my size, I have a fairly strong punch. Yeah. So the danger is when you hit a boy, so boys are fine to spar with you. That's all well and good. But when you land a shot on them, and it hurts go. a little bit. Yeah. So then, then you've got that whole challenge of perceived rate of exertion. My eighty percent doesn't mean that you get to spar at eighty percent. Like you're already hitting hard and it hurts. And if I land one on you to hurt back, it's like it it can easily escalate. So it's yeah. really challenging. But it was you know in that in that club in that gym it was a no token punches. I got frustrated with that. At so they're another- at a hundred percent. They're not at a hundred percent for sure. They're not at a hundred percent, but they're hitting with intent. Did you ever sit down and chat with them about how it felt for them to hop, in, like for you to hop in the ring with them? No, nah, didn't actually. It'd be interesting to have a conversation with someone that does that. Yeah, and although that they're saying no token punches, I'm wondering how much they actually do pull their punches. Yeah, and they would, and you know, and you shouldn't be. I mean, no one's sparring at a hundred percent, but there were times in training where the rounds were, we're like this is we're doing rounds for this reason. Mm. So I want you to try. You want the aim is to to hit to land punches and do do the work. Um, there was also conditioned sparring where we both have particular things that we are working on and do and then there's you know you go as hard as you go you know it's not it's not full on but yeah there were a lot of hard punches and it's just I got frustrated at another gym where when I wasn't fighting but I was sparring and I was sparring with guys but a lot of them weren't fighters some of them want to fight or have maybe fought a little bit but they're inexperienced now I got more frustrated and got the shits in that environment because when you have an inexperienced fight so I would rather wear John's punches that are harder when he has an understanding and control than an inexperienced guy that has no idea about this power to weight like you got 25 kilos on me and you're thrusting your whole body weight and it's you know it's off-putting and so then I can't learn so you get a you get an inexperienced person putting more more oomph behind their punches but you actually can't practice your skills because you're just getting pummeled around and it's like it's it's messy and it's annoying and that's when I was you know decided I don't even want to like I don't if I'm not fighting I don't also don't want to be sparring because I don't want to get my there's no point of you hitting me this hard Mm. because you can learn more when you are working on technique and skill development rather than just I'm going to knock you out how did you go from <clears throat> how did you go from corporate speaking gig 
boxing PT to then doing the performance coaching? Because what's the difference between a performance coach and a life coach? Performance coaching. So I've I've done a lot some life a life coaching course, but I never did it to be a life coach. I did it for the interest in understanding and dissecting. Uh, you know, I'd been exposed to NLP and some of mm. the coaching techniques. So it was this understanding of influence and language and how we um, how we best change behaviours. Performance coaching is really it's an amalgamation of taking like it's just outcome based. So performance coaching could be for me in the realm of physical performance or business performance. So it really it was a, a really blanket thing where I would performance coach corporates, people in business, um, and that could cover some physical stuff. But it's really it's really outcome based. It's high performance. It's it's a really <clears throat> inclusive view of what are we doing in life and our habits and our behavior and our thinking and how can we enhance ourselves as a human in terms of the you being in the ring and facing these the challenge of of repeatedly being punched in the head I mean the fact that you then that mindset of then going okay well I'm just going to meet this head on and and also excel in that environment which you did because you won three of the championships how have you taken that and then conveyed that to somebody that's a layman like me and think there's a, a thing called a north Pole, and <laughs> and how do you convey that mindset to somebody that's like yeah I just want to achieve things in my in my life or my work or whatever it might be how do you then convey that mindset to somebody that hasn't taken those hits and hasn't had to step in the ring and overcome those fears. Mm. It's really funny. I did a couple of talks recently to a bunch of on the Pink Stumps Day event. So, and so a lot of women in the room and definitely not fighters. <laughs> and it's interesting to me because I go, I'm coming in to speak to these people and I'm a fighter. So they get the whole, oh, Tiff's a box champion, boxer, blah, blah, all the things. And it, it really intrigued me because people come up later and they're like, oh, I, I resonated with what you said. I've, so there's this connection where they're like, I see me in you. And I love that because I go, I don't, I'm not up there to be the boxer. This is not about what I've done. This is about how I felt. And so that's there's two things that really stood out to me. And the very first thing is I remember after that first fight, I got changed. I was watching the next fight and I was looking, standing in front of the ring and I was looking at it and I was thinking, that's it. 12 weeks of my life of intense fear, discomfort, inner critic, being the worst person in the gym, and I was, being uncoordinated um, every day, the, the fear, 12 weeks of that. I had to change the way I socialize, the way I you know, prioritize sleep, the way I eat. I don't, you know, no wine with dinner. Um, all of the things, going to bed early every day, that was just a whole change of everything for 12 weeks and it was over for me in under six minutes. It was over and that was it. And I went, ah, oh, that is life. Everything I should expect to achieve, the achievement is the six minutes and the work is the 12 weeks. So it bloody well better be worth it. So it was this new mindset for me of like that's the ratio of hard that it takes to get anywhere. So if I want a business, it's not just going to walk along. 
the trainer's not just going to tap me on the shoulder and go, hey, you should box and I'm going to walk away with a trophy. I'm going to have to raise my hand. I'm going to have to go for 12 weeks, get up early, do the thing, be terrified. And the other thing is that's really important is I was the terrible boxer until I stepped inside the ring on the night and the bell rang. I was a terrible boxer and I'm not just saying that. I was uncoordinated. I, I didn't, I wasn't the best. Um, I know that my coaches didn't think I was going to win. I wasn't, I was no good. And there was a voice in my head all of the time telling me that. So what I believe doesn't matter. There was a time when I remember at one particular gym, I was sparring and I was sparring with a girl who had 10 or 11 more years of experience under her belt and she'd won a bunch of Australian titles and she was maybe three weight divisions up from me so she had a weight advantage and we're sparring and I got out at the end and I was sitting on a chair having a bit of a salt to myself. My trainer comes up and goes, what's wrong with you? I was like, oh, I'm just just sick of, you know, like, I don't know, I whinged about something. Nah, not good, not getting any better. He goes, are you serious? No one has ever put that amount of pressure on Carly in this gym ever and that is the best you have ever sparred in this gym. And I just looked at him and I go, what a shit sport. (laughs) I've just performed the best I've ever performed and I think I'm crap. So the one of the most beneficial lessons I learned is my perception of this is not reality. What I think actually doesn't matter and do not make decisions based on how I feel or think about something like that. So when you have conversations with your clients now in terms of the performance coaching, how do you, I mean, you've created that mindset because you've overcome these challenges you face those fears you've jumped Mm. into the ring Mm. how do you then convey someone or motivate somebody I suppose it's their own motivation but how Mm. do you convey that to somebody in terms of this is the reality there's going to be punches in life that you've got to get up from and you've just got to get on and do it but if they haven't lived that experience and walked that journey themselves how do you then make someone self-motivate yeah I think for me it's a there's finding so there's the information that we can pass on so we can tell stories and we can give someone an understanding and that's really important for me it was really important along the way it was really important for me to understand the workings of the mind and how we make decisions and why and developing self-awareness and knowing what it means to kick myself in the butt and what it means to be self-compassionate and when should both of those things be applied and how do I find that balance Um, because it can be really tricky and why do I feel unstoppable some days and terrible the next yet that doesn't always correlate with my performance on the day. So I think there's, um, there's presenting information and giving people an understanding of potential and then there is assisting in finding a way to experience that. So find your boxing ring. You don't need to be punched in the face but you do need, but we need to develop a relationship with discomfort. We need to build habits. We need to understand that the world we live in now 
is very different to the world that the human brain was developed to exist in. So, I mean, we were supposed to chase our food and kill it. We were given these, like, adrenaline and we were given this neurobiology for a reason and now that we don't need to use it for survival, it gets used in everyday life but we, it terrifies us because we're not chasing lions anymore. Mm. We're play, going on a date for the first time in two years after being locked in our house. Same bloody, same thing goes off in our brain, you know. It's like, oh, God, panic, panic. It's, it's, it's a lion. <laughs> it's not a lion. But, you know, it's okay. So it's developing this relationship with our physiology and our mind and understanding that, um, that there's so many variables to what makes us feel and behave a certain way. Um, and I think just dissecting that. You you do have a real deep passion and thirst for the neurobiology <laughs> that's come through in the conversations. Obsessed with it. You've you've got your own pun you've got your own podcast, Roll with the Punches. Do you have guests like that on that you have those discussions with? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I've had everything from Australia's most daring prison escapee to Oh, who um, is that? Oh, John Killick. He actually just liked a Facebook post once and for some reason I have no idea this is weird, right? I have no idea why. I just grabbed his name off of I never do this. It's not like yeah. I grab people random people's name yeah. and Google them, but for him I did. And I was like, Oh my goodness. It's so <laughs> funny because I've had um I've had the police officers that put them away and then they've, they've escaped, you know, discussing that and, you know, so it's I've had the other side of it. So it'd be interesting to interesting to sort of um speak to someone that lived oh mate i'll give you i'll give you an intro they were they were really great and i have a lot of first responders too so it was really funny because you know i'm I'm a part of the code nine foundation i'm an ambassador for them which is sergeant mark thomas is he is the founder of that organization it's for mental health for first responders so it was really interesting to um develop an intrigue and an interest in the psyche of people that have been through the system and understand them. Um, With the um, the first re- responders, you should have a chat to David McGowan. He's the CEO of the Police Vict- uh, Veterans Victoria organisation. Mm. It's new because there's no mental health support for ex-police force veterans. Mm. And so they've just started started that up not long ago. So you should have him on. He's very interesting. You can listen to the you can listen to the episode that I had with him, and then he's got some. What very episode number is that, Fiona? I don't know. It's a few <laughs> couple ago. I'll look it up. I'll look it up. <laughs> I know you gave me a real perfect plug there, and I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I have to look it up. Hang on. Here we go. I'm bloody looking up now. It's going to irritate me if I don't. <laughs> 64 episode 64 all right hear that everyone we'll all go listen to that together (laughs) (laughs) i think they're phenomenal um you know police ambulance when i first started when we went into lockdown i was training ambulance victoria paramedics which was kind of planted the seed for my podcast because i started doing feel good friday which was just getting online for a zoom chat and then i started pulling in speakers and then this all sort of evolved 
but you know that getting when you get to know people like that and have an understanding as to what they're exposed to and how that how that affects their life you know I drew that alliance to the me in the boxing ring and what what drew me there and I was like oh well, what draws you guys into this crazy world of a career that you've stepped into mm. I find that um I like to speak to people that have had really different lives to myself, you know, yeah. and let's be honest, it's, it's been very sheltered, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and and it's thankfully because there's people out there that are the first responders or in the military or whatever that afford me the opportunity to sit down mm. and have a latte and whinge about the current state of affairs um, because there's people out there putting their life on the line literally mm. to afford people like myself to do that. And I think that when you live a comfortable life, which, you know, I don't think if you're seeing the worst in people on a daily basis, I think that's a comfortable life. Mm. You can easily forget the sacrifices that others put forward to allow that to happen. And I love chatting with people to give that um, light. Yes. Like some of the ex-military guys that I've had on are just phenomenal. I've got another one coming up on Friday that I'm interviewing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just incredible, you mm. know. Mm. Like, yeah. So anyway. That's I love it. that. You're in that company, Tiff. I think you're incredible too. Oh, oh <laughs> boom. I'm like, how did I squeeze onto the show? <laughs> well, you know, I think that getting punched in the face at a regular interval is pretty phenomenal anyway. I think that we've we've scammed ourselves into the most incredible um privileged industry yeah. isn't that amazing yeah. like if i rang up any one of these people or reached out and go i just want to pick your brain for 90 minutes you know 60 to 90 minutes i'd go who are you go away and as soon as you go i got a podcast i go sure and you're like this is amazing <laughs> It's such a scam. It's such. It's but it's such a. It's just so incredible. I don't see and it as a scam. I see it because I see it as giving other people an insight yeah. into their brain as well. Yeah. So, but I, I think it's such a privilege to be able mm. to have these conversations. Mm. So, thank you for coming on, Tiff. If anyone wants um, corporate speaking gigs for Tiff, you can reach out through her website, tiffanyandco.com.au. She's also got workshops and programs, which she doesn't have any listed at the moment. Apparently, it's very ad hoc. Um, <laughs> but you can also go on uh, to her uh, podcast through that as well, Roll With The Punches podcast. Thanks, Tiff. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them. 